Hi, my name is Susan. I've been arrested 32 times just for listening to people talk with each other. The problem was I used to hide in the bushes outside the windows of people's homes to enjoy listening to strangers talk to each other. It's just something I like to do. I get bored and lonely sometimes, you know. Hey, Susan, don't do all that. There's another way to enjoy random conversations? Now, thanks to the podcast show, I can enjoy listening to conversations with strangers and learn something new every week. No more listening outside the window just to enjoy a good conversation. Tune in weekly on Wednesdays and subscribe for updates on your favorite platform to the Toddcast show and help our podcast family continue to grow and share around the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Toddcast show. My name is Todd Mira, your host, and I'm so excited to be here with all of you. The Toddcast show is dedicated to exploring the human condition through conversation with strangers. We explore the positive, interesting, and oftentimes shocking side of human nature. In each episode of the Toddcast show, I talk with strangers in a down-to-earth, old-school, and heartfelt way about their life. Nothing is ever scripted, everything is spontaneous, positive, and we never discuss politics. You won't know what to expect next. Join in the conversation to laugh, love, learn, and grow with others around the planet. Who will I call next? Tune in to find out every Wednesday at midnight Pacific or for playback anytime on your favorite podcast listening platform. And stay connected with us at ToddCastShow.com. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Toddcast Show. Today we're joined with someone named Alex Fink. How are you doing today, Alex? I'm very good. How are you? Feeling good, man. Where are you calling from? Austin, Texas. Oh, wow. Austin. Is that uh, the city of lights? Is that what they call it? I, I think it's the live music capital of the U.S., but I'm not sure. Oh, that's it, too. Yeah, I thought it was something, the city of lights. But yeah, I know there's a lot of music there. That's awesome, man. Wow, Austin. Have you lived there your whole life? Were you born there? Uh, no, I've gone through a pretty long path to get here. Uh, so I was born in Eastern Europe. Then I moved well, to Israel when I was six. Wow. Then to Japan when I was 22, then to California, and Austin only in the past five years. No kidding, man. Wow, that's an amazing path. That is a long path. Holy Jesus. So you were born in Eastern Europe. Whereabouts, um, can uh, you mention the exact location? Yeah, the exact location is called Transnistria. It's this small piece of land that technically belongs to Moldova, but it proclaimed independence in 1991, so oh. it doesn't belong to anyone, I guess. All right, um, but you can't buy it, right? <laughs> you can't go you, buy you, it. On... <laughs> it, it. No, you can't buy it. It's not that small, right? There's, I'm uh, I think, around 300,000 people still living there. Neat. Um, and That's it, cool. it might also be the only place in the world that actually wants to join Russia, but Russia won't take them, so it's complicated over there. <laughs> no kidding. Wow. What kind of... Um... Dynamics does there need to be for Russia not to want to take you? They're invading a place right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I, I guess, no upside. But in general, I'm not an expert on the situation there because I was six when we left. And sort of the situation heating up was one of the reasons my parents decided it's time to leave. Because right, it gotcha. was clear that the Moldovans wanted it. The, most of the people that lived there did not want to be a part of Moldova. My parents said, if we're going to need to learn a new language, let's learn Hebrew instead. And so we just moved to Israel. And instead of the war that happened uh, in Transnistria in 91, we got the missiles from Saddam Hussein during Desert Storm in 91. So, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So you've got some uh, pretty wild memories in your past. Um, do you have siblings? Yes. I have an older brother. He lives in California. Mm-hmm. And uh, just you and he? Yes. Cool. And are both of your parents, uh, did they spend their lives together? Were they together? Yeah. Are they still together? They still are. They moved to California recently from Israel to join my brother and uh, you know, grandkids, all of that. 
Super cool, man. That is really neat. Wow. Yeah, it's always fascinating. I'm not a world traveler myself. I've been to Mexico and, you know, it doesn't really count. But, uh, you know, the other countries, uh, if I wasn't so afraid of flying, I'd probably have done it by now. Um, but I'm really fascinated by that. Um, can I ask what, what kind of memories come to mind when you think of your early childhood living over there? All sorts. I think childhood memories are pretty random, at least in my case. They go back to the time I was two. But I, there's no rhyme or reason to why I remember a specific moment and not mm -hmm. any anything else from that year. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I really don't know. I, I have memories of when I was two and I was learning to do like, jumping from one place to another. And I don't know, that's an odd memory to have. But I remember specifically practicing jumps. <laughs> that's interesting. Wow. Um, I think about this sort of thing sometimes and... Uh, my earliest memory, just to, maybe this will jog yours. Um, so like my earliest memory, strangely enough, and it's totally involuntary, like I, I don't have to think about it. It's just there, but it's kind of by itself, right? Like I don't have an inventory of memories from before I was uh, 18 months old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I do have this one. I was a baby and I remember lying in the crib and... Uh, and I remember looking up and seeing the wallpaper, you know, it was red, white, and blue stripes, and they were different widths, and I could just see it all. And then I remember my brother, my middle brother, coming in to pick me up one night. Like, I don't know why, but, like, it's just a weird random memory. But, dude, I was a baby, man, and we moved there from there when I was 18 months, so it was before that. Um, so like, I don't know why, you know, and another time I remember the same brother jumping on the bed with me underneath it and scaring the shit out of me. Um, but otherwise, uh, I think two other memories exist from that era of my life. Um, otherwise, you know, it's like pretty blank. Yeah. It's weird how memory is stored and how we have limited access to it. Right. Well, I think that's one element. The other one is, I think think most of it never goes away. And so if you try to develop access, if it's important for you, you probably can. Mm. And But I think I spend most of my mental resources trying to remember things that I think will be useful. Mm -hmm. So I have pretty good memory for numbers, pages I've seen in a book, things like this. Pretty good That's photographic awesome. memory as well. That's but awesome. Memories from ra random things in childhood, I guess my brain thinks it's not important. So it doesn't store the access key. Yeah, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, I always wonder about how those things influence our behavior as adults, you know, and there's certain things like uh, I got stung by a bee when I was a little tiny child and that, you know, stuck with me enough so that, you know, even today, I mean, I'm a lot more caught, you know, I'm cool now. I can stand my ground if there's a bee nearby. All right. Like, I mean, I don't run like a little girl anymore, but I sure did for a long time, man, like scared to death of bees because I had a bad experience when I was a little kid or, you know, things like that. You know, it's uh, fascinating to me how we can be influenced without even really realizing it. And yeah. So I was kind of curious, you know, if there was an early impetus of uh, some type of memory that, you know, stuck with you as a strong you know, guidance type thing in your life. You know, that's kind of what I was looking for. Nothing that guides my general direction. But I should mention that I think phobias are proof that we have perfect memories and perfect learning capacity because mm -hmm. something happens to you once mm -hmm. and you remember it every single time when anything similar comes up, right? So you have the story of the bee, mine involves dogs, right? I was attacked by a couple of dogs when I was six. And mm -hmm. so to this day, whenever I see a dog, even if I know it's a friendly dog, I've played with this dog many times before, my heart rate goes up. Mm -hmm. I can feel my, my heart beating faster mm -hmm. and sort of almost the veins pulsing a little bit. But my brain says everything's fine. So it's almost disconnected from my body and what the reaction is to the situation. Because something in my body remembers dogs scary. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel that. And uh, there's nothing worse than the feeling of anticipation of impending doom. <laughs> uh, nobody likes that. Yeah, and I, I feel you there. Um, there is one trick that I know 
<laughs> I've never actually used it, but I, I read it somewhere and it always stuck with me. If you ever find yourself stuck in a bad situation with a dog, just stick something in its ass. Uh, apparently, that's all you got to do. Um, if you got that far, I think you didn't have a problem to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's unlikely it'll be welcomed, but apparently, like, they don't want anything near their ass. So, like, if you stick something in it, like, go for the middle, and they'll stop biting you, at least, and you can get away. That's That was the point of the story. Um, it wasn't a love story, either, you know, nothing like that. Um but yeah, just uh, jam something in there. I, I think I'd be willing to give it a try if I was getting bit by a pit bull. Um, if you were already getting bit, perhaps. <laughs> but if not, then you might cause the biting to happen. Right, right, right. Yeah, we might just trigger a, uh, <laughs> an unexpected love connection. Right. Yeah, we don't want that. Uh, we don't want that at all. Um, so Eastern Europe, and then from there you said Japan, right? Well. Israel first. Oh, Israel, I'm years, so sorry. So yeah, please forgive roughly me. Roughly half my life. <laughs> that's amazing. And uh, moving from one place to the other in those areas, what was it like? What was it like getting into Israel life and uh, Israeli life and learning the language and culture and all that stuff? Well, learning the language is not a problem when you're six, I think. So mm -hmm. within three days, I was somehow conversing with other kids playing soccer. or things Really? Like so, yeah, I think as a kid... You just never heard anybody say that learning a language is hard, and so you're not, you don't know it's supposed to be hard, and then it's easy. I think the, yeah. the main problem with adults is we got taught it's supposed to be hard, and we got somebody put it in our head that you're supposed to study, you're supposed to open a book, you're supposed to memorize words, etc. And when you do it, it's pretty hard. <laughs> I think kids just don't know, don't know that it's supposed to be hard and don't have the bad habits yet, and so. They just learn immediately. Got that right. I would agree, man. Children have uh, something special that we lose along the way. And I don't think we realize what all we're losing when that innocence gets tarnished, you know. Um, but, yeah, I agree with you completely. That's a very good point, actually. Um, so getting started in that culture, I mean, there's uh, cultural and religious traditions, yes. Uh, did you have to participate in new cultural norms i mean like what was that whole thing like um no we have to learn all of those anew and in fact we're ethnically jewish but we didn't even know anything about the religion while living mm -hmm. in eastern europe so essentially i was teaching my parents to think that they're supposed to know because i heard something in school or i read something in a book and i would tell them what the traditions are because they had no idea but otherwise i know israel is pretty um diverse it is like the majority is Jewish, but it's Jews from all over the world. And so even inside Israel, you don't refer to somebody else as a Jew. You refer to them as Moroccan, Russian, Polish, based on where their family is from. And mm -hmm. so it, it seems like there's more diversity and more tribalism within the Jews in Israel than among actual nations of the world, which is kind of odd. So in that sense, there isn't a single culture. You could say everybody speaks Hebrew for the most part, except if you're in an Arab town and then everybody speaks Arabic. But other than that, it's, I don't know, there is an immigrant adjustment, definitely. So I can say I never fully assimilated. I even had this, I want to think conscious, but maybe not so conscious, maybe reactionary thing where I actually kept some of my Russian accent to be recognizable as an outsider. Mm -hmm. um, which, again, I think most kids would do the opposite, right? Wow, you, you actually made a conscious choice to do that? That's what I remember. It could be a false memory. It's hard to tell, right? Mm -hmm. But I can speak without the Russian accent, but my entire life I spoke with a bit of a Russian accent in Hebrew, which kind of implies uh, that I wanted it, right? I see. Yeah, that's cool, man. I do know how you can... I mean, I think we're all capable of this but when you go into different environments you know we naturally kind of lock into whatever it is that's going on you know so like in the south you might i understand you know you might speak a little slower or whatever um yeah. new york is kind of a tough one or new jersey but yeah 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 i can see why you'd want to keep your accent um and your heritage you know as a russian that's got to mean something to you right well, again, I don't have a heritage as a Russian. I, I'm just a Russian speaker, 
and I grew up in the Soviet Union, right? But, um, you know, for years when I was asked in the U.S. or somewhere else, where are you from? I would say Russia. They would ask, where in Russia are you from? I would say, uh, I've actually never been to the country, sorry. <laughs> so okay. it was always kind of an odd Russian existence in, in the sense that I'm completely fake as a Russian. Okay, I've got a ridiculous question I have to ask. How did you get the accent if you were never really there? Well, no, no, I wasn't in Russia, but the other republics around Russia speak Russian. Oh. At least parts of them do, right? So the place where I was born, it was 90% Russian-speaking, maybe 10% Moldovan-speaking, and Moldovan is kind of like a a regional dialect of Romania, right? Neat. Uh, So... We, sp- we still speak Russian with my parents. I speak Russian with my wife. She's also from one of these borderland regions between Russia and Finland. Um, and so, yeah, Russian's my primary yep. first language, even though I left when I was six. So I guess it's frozen in time. Yeah, it's that's cool. Somewhat Do you have a dog? State. No, a cat. No. Okay, a cat. Do you speak to your cat in Russian? Yes. Awesome. Any- even though the cat is born in the USA, she's from Tennessee. But they understand, right? Like, I mean, it's just well, the same, right? Well, I don't, I don't know how much cats understand in general, but... <laughs> I wonder, too. I think it's selective. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's also... I, I think I read somewhere that their brains are smaller than their jaw muscles. Mm. So cats are... They're not as intelligent as dogs, I guess. Um, mm. They might be more independent, which is cool, but they're not as intelligent. Yeah. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. I like cats. I had one for 20 years, and he was a good little kitty, and I had her since she was born pretty much after she was weaned, and that was a long ride, man. She was a tiger tiger tabby and no health problems until the very end, and, you know, like, I guess I got my mileage, but, uh, boy, it was the toughest thing I've ever had to do. I still can't get another one. Like, I don't think, you know, my heart's only got room for one of those losses, I think, you know. Um, but yeah, yeah. Cherish it. Um, that's cool, man. That's cool. And so moving from, uh, Israel to Japan, how long did you spend in Israel again? 17 years in Israel. And then Japan was, um, it was basically a business trip that got extended and then extended and extended. Uh, So I spent overall about a year there, but I was never officially a resident of the country. I would just stay for a few months and then leave for a week and come back. So I see. I had an apartment in Tokyo and everything, and I didn't actually have a place anywhere else. All my stuff was in a box at the office, but I wasn't technically a resident of the country. I see. Wow, that's interesting. What, um, I mean, were there eye-opening things that you noticed right away going there? Because I know it's an exciting country. Well, the transition from Israel to Japan is interesting because... They are almost the opposite as far as culture goes. Mm-hmm. Right? If, if a Japanese person thinks you're an idiot, he will say, this is a little different. Like, chotto chigao. Right? But if an Israeli thinks it's a little different, he's going to tell you he's, you're an idiot. Right? Mm-hmm. So those countries are exactly the opposite in terms of directness. And uh, Israelis, I think, also rank dead last in terms of respect for authority mm-hmm. or the power distance index, they call it, whereas Japan is near the top. So it was an interesting transition now. Again, I'm sort of open to other cultures. I've been, I've seen a bunch of them. And so it's not that I didn't expect a transition like some people, but uh, it's pretty different when you're suddenly in it and you see everybody thinking in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. Even when it comes to abiding by rules, right? I found that most Japanese people don't even have that question in their mind. The what if? somebody breaks this rule yeah like they can't even imagine somebody thinking it so what's the point of asking the what if right if there is a a vending machine that sells beer it says only for people 18 or older you ask a japanese person what happens if an underage person tries to buy it and he has no idea they're like what do you mean like what do you mean it says 18 or Uh older nobody will try That's great. I really like that. That's one of the things I love about those cultures is uh, that adherence to that. And it creates a really comfortable, safe society, you know, in a way. And I know in Japan, it's one of those places where you can drop your wallet and uh, it'll either be there or somebody will 
find you and bring it to you. You know, it's like a really honest place. So I have to say, I've lost my wallet as a teenager twice in Israel, oh. and both times it was returned to me. Really? <laughs> yeah. Cool, man. Good, good. So, so I would say that kind of thing, it doesn't necessarily go with abiding by rules. It goes more with just yeah, you know, doing general conscientiousness right. of a society. Yeah, I think for Japan being so busy, it was strange. You know, like when I found out how low the crime rate was and whatnot there, it was really quite amazing to me. Um, you know, for that many people, but they all get along and care about each other, it seems. So, you know, yeah. that makes the difference big time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wow. And uh, so at the point that you were in Japan, like, is that when... You started to see changes in your life, or like, were you going in a particular direction? What were you doing at the time? I was all over the place in some sense. But no, it's not that I was seeing changes in my life. The changes themselves were sort of planned. Um, and in fact, a lot of it at the time was driven by a desire to get to the US. Mm -hmm. Because I, I don't know, I read some books when I was 12 or 13. And so I've been dreaming about coming to the US since then. And so even the job that took me to Japan, it, I only took that job because it promised relocation to the U.S. And so uh, I, see. I just what? had to spend a year somewhere else on an L1 visa or to be eligible for an L1 visa. And I picked Japan instead of staying in Israel or going to some other place for that year. I so, see. yeah, I was writing software for digital cameras, uh, video cameras mostly, but basically any point and shoot, which that was a big market at the time. Mm -hmm. And so Japan was one of the two places to be for that market, essentially. It's either that or Taiwan. I guess Korea as well, a little bit. Mm -hmm. But out of those, I picked Japan because it seemed like the more interesting place for me. And so that's where I spent most of my time. I still kept going there um, to support those same customers for several years afterwards, even when I lived in the U.S. Cool. Very cool. What types of things uh, made you want to come to the United States? What's important to you that made it worth all that effort just to get here? Well, I can say my current impression or my childhood impression. Right? I think when I was a child, there was this feeling that everything around me is kind of constrained. Everybody's doing what they're expected to some extent, and there is a ceiling on many things that you can do. The at least the literature about the U.S., especially about 19th century U.S. or early 20th century U.S., it created this impression of essentially no boundaries. You can achieve absolutely anything. There is no guarantees. You can fail miserably along the way, right? But there is no ceiling to anything you can do. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what appealed to me. Maybe it's combined that with overconfidence that, I can be the best at anything if I just try, right? And that combination means I want to be in the place with the highest upside. Yeah. And, and how much of, um, I know we don't talk about politics or whatever, but like how much of like government type thing, you know, because in other countries, the governments are really different. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, really limiting, probably in some cases, really empowering, but did any of that type of stuff and like living conditions based on, you know, different countries' rules and things like that, is that part of what draws you to the United States as well or drew you? I, I'm, I'm sure it is. In fact, like, if you consider that I was particularly drawn to 19th century U.S. and not the current U.S. in some sense, right, mm -hmm. then you could guess that, again, I was born in a place with a lot of government where... Uh, some back calculation of what the real taxation was suggested was about 96%, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything was the public sector, right? And so I was definitely drawn till, since childhood to a place where there is as little government as possible. Right. And at least the early U.S. was that place. Right now, it's probably already getting pretty close to the same number of re restrictions and laws and regulatory agencies as most of Europe or Israel or Japan. Right? But at least the U.S. I read about was the Wild West, right? Yeah, you're talking like the 1800s? Possibly. So, again, I read a lot of books as a kid. And so there's a lot more interesting adventure stories about oh, totally, the, the Jack London era, right? 
Uh, oh, yeah. By the way, like, Jack London, I know he's not very popular in the U.S., but he was a big thing in the Soviet Union and Russian literature in general because I guess he was a communist for a part of his life. And so mm -hmm. everybody I know read a lot of Jack London, or at least everybody I knew as a child. Yeah. Um, so you always read about those wild open plains, uh, no oh, and another good one no is Louis, for, no, Louis for Lamore. Miles. Are you familiar with Louis Lamore? No, never never read him. Oh, man, if you like that sort of thing, this is going to be a treat for you. And you can find movies that are based on the books, too. But Louis Lamore, Louis Lamore, Louis Lamore, mm -hmm. uh, really great author of old Western novels and really great stories. My dad used to read all that stuff. That's how I figured, you know, the name I didn't really even know. And we would go to the library and he'd pick out all of the books and like bring them home in a bag and he could read a book like in a day. Like, I don't know how he did it, but he was a speed reader. And so he'd go through all these books over a couple of weeks and then we'd go get more and he'd do it again. But Louis L'Amour was always his favorite author. And there are some really great stories uh, that you'll enjoy. You know, I watch old Westerns all the time. Like I'm really into it. And like literally every day when I'm not working, I uh, spend some time in the evening or whatever watching some type of Old West show, and there's a whole bunch of them. And uh, boy, it's, yeah, I, I'm all about that. Like, so I, I'm with you. And I live in a place that's kind of in an Old West environment, actually. Mm -hmm. I'm in the center of the state of Arizona. And uh, strangely, and you might get a kick out of this, but the road that I live on is actually the road where the railroad tracks used to go uh, when they, they passed through from Phoenix to Prescott and the wagon stop, you know, used to come here. And so back in the day, this was one of those little tiny towns like along the really crazy long mountain path that you came to for, you know, drinks and, you know, supplies and women, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. No, so, so those stories definitely appealed to me as a child, but then as I got older, awesome. I started reading more. So yeah. I had stories about Wall Street. I had stories about oh. the, the origins of Silicon Valley and people essentially mm -hmm. building the capital of tech in the middle of a pretty boring place where nothing was going on, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Santa Clara used to be orchards, right? And then totally. at some point it became one of the most developed places in the world. So yeah. all of these types of stories were... There's just ingenuity and a lot of perseverance and something amazing happens. None of these stories typically involve a bureaucrat coming in and trying to regulate things, right? <laughs> the story ends before you get to that point. And yeah. certainly the part that appealed to me was not the part that involves proper regulation of things. Right. Right. I can understand that completely. Um so let's get to America then. Now we're, we're, we're one step away from the story that makes you who you are. So you came to America. Tell me a little bit about that time in your life. So came to America in my early 20s, still basically pigeonholed into building video cameras of one type or, or another. Mm -hmm. um, maybe some computer visual along, along the way, but for the most part, the cameras themselves. Uh, and my brother was already here, so he already had a lot of friends and so you could say that the social life I landed into, I didn't have to rebuild it from scratch. Mm -hmm. So that part was pretty taken care of. But in all other ways, I was still, I had these dreams of entrepreneurship, right? At the same time, I had this relatively safe job in a space that I considered somewhat boring, but I was working on. And that dissonance stayed with me for a pretty long time. But you could say that up until a year ago, I was still, for the most part, living in this world where there's separation between how I make money and what I really think is important, right? I see. Um, and I was pretty successful at the things that I was building, but I always had that kind of dissonance that I think what I'm building is not actually, or I thought at the time that what I was building was not actually good for the world, or at least not really important. Um, mm -hmm. The world doesn't need more cameras, right? And right, so right. even though I was really good at building a camera into anything, essentially, whether it's a self-driving car or a robot or an action camera or a surveillance device of some sort, it didn't feel like I'm doing something that is 
necessary or that somebody will remember fondly a hundred years from now. Right, 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 right. So that's well, that was kind of my state, at least professionally, for a pretty long time, fifteen years roughly. Maybe you missed your calling, man. You you should be making toilet cams for OnlyFans channels. <laughs> well, that's, I'm, sure I'm that's completely one, that, that's kidding. I'm completely kidding. But, but we we live it, in a pretty sick society, dude. Yeah. Like you could get creative with one of those cameras and probably come on to a whole new thing, you know. And some yeah, I I, I did have at some point somebody approach me with the idea of building cameras into alarm clocks in hotels so they right. can record hotel rooms. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of weird ideas when, when things come to cameras. I've worked on a wide range of things, everything from baby monitors and pet monitors to mm-hmm. helmet-mounted cameras for special forces and mm-hmm. rifle scopes and things like that. So awesome. um, internally, they all look kind of the same. There's not a big difference. You have to change some parameters based on what it is you're trying to record and at what distance. But, uh, yeah, at, at some point I was just, going through the motions because I just knew how to do this thing from beginning to end. Like from the moment somebody has an idea and just tries to describe the use case to the moment where you unload the container with the boxes in it coming from China. I, I, I knew every step along the way, like the palm of my hand, which also gets kind of boring at some point. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, when, when your mind isn't expanding, it does get a little sedentary. And I think... Nobody, I mean, I don't know, some people work better that way. I mean, there's some people that love to do the same thing over and over and be bored to death and it doesn't bother them a bit. Whereas like myself, like it makes me want to like run around the building just to get my blood boiling up again because it's so stale. But, you know, things get really boring after a while. So you found that your path, your career path was more of um, enablement for financial you know, uh, foundation and that sort of thing. And then, um, you know, you, you just figured out that you were unhappy, right? Like, I mean, is that the bottom line? It's it's not that I was unhappy. It's, I was living with this kind of cognitive dissonance, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I, I was fairly happy as it were, but like, I felt that I could do more. I understand. And, um, like the actual conversation that made me go in the direction of acting on that desire was actually with my wife. And she's the one that told me why, like, if you think something else is more important, why aren't you working on it? You can afford to, right? And okay, if I got the okay from her, then why am I sitting here, right? Mm Because I kept thinking I am doing this thing to make money because I have a family, I have responsibilities, et cetera, right? But the moment my wife gives me the okay to get up and go and, know maybe live without a salary for a while but build something meaningful then Mm -hmm. i have to take that right absolutely absolutely and what are your parents uh what were they thinking about all this stuff as you're going through these changes they're used to me having crazy ideas all the time so i'm the uh crazy one in the family you could say everybody else is a lot less adventurous and so yeah. yeah. Even as I had a relatively almost safe career path, I was still doing weird things along the way. So um, they're not surprised by me trying something out of the ordinary. But when you say weird, all you really mean is entrepreneurial, right? Among other things, not only. <laughs> like, were you lighting fires and things, or like, I mean, <laughs> no, no, but like, I, I'm this very logical person that can sit there and analyze for weeks at a time before picking some sort of supplement. And then I will go on a weekend to Cheyenne and end up buying a house on a whim. Uh So, so I do tend to have these moments of, you know, let's pause the logic for a bit and just act on an impulse. Man, that sounds really cool though. I'd like to go vitamin shopping with you sometime. (laughs) (laughs) Again, then, then my logical mind analyzes this and thinks, okay, the, the amount of effort I put into decisions should be somewhat related to the magnitude of the outcome, right? Gotcha. And so there's a lot of things I overanalyze, even though it's not worth it. I see. And then there are things that I just wing, and I just go based, based on intuition alone. But that's a gift, you know. Wouldn't you recognize that as a personal gift that, you know, is just something special to your nature? Possible, but every gift needs to be directed a little bit. True, and true. So, so you, you always need to know 
uh, or I have this model that works, what is the scope within which the, the model works, right? Absolutely. But um, like in my mind, I, I tend to believe that everything leads you to the next thing. And so, you know, like for me, I have a background in all sorts of different areas, uh, starting with sales and like customer service, a little bit of management, some restaurant work. Uh, I built websites for a real long time, um, did a lot of marketing, branding, you know, things like that, printing, you know, stuff along those lines. And um, all that experience, you know, somehow led to my ability to be able to do like this, for example, the podcast, you know, and to figure out, oh, this is all I really need. And oh, look, and I can build my own website and do my own marketing and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, if I hadn't had that background, I wouldn't really be prepared as much as I am. And so I'm just kind of curious, you know, in your life being an analytical guy and someone that can do things in that unique way and being willing to, you know, sacrifice yourself for your family to generate an income based on a career that you're not totally thrilled with, but you know, you're good at it. So, I mean, um, how did all that kind of change for you? And I'd love to get into talking about where it uh, directed itself, because I know it's an exciting thing that we want to share. But um, where did you find that change taking place? And, you know, once your wife gave you the go ahead, like what happened exactly? And well, so at first, what happened was I started a little project as kind of a moonlighting thing almost. I didn't even know whether, based on what the idea is, whether it's supposed to be a nonprofit, a normal C-Corp, something in between like a public benefits corporation. I had no idea initially, right? So I just started building things on the side and talking to as many people as I could. Like I signed up to Y Combinator's matchmaking website where they sort of match potential founders with each other. And I started trying to verbalize my idea and see how crazy people think I am. And during those conversations, the idea morphed many times. So the initial idea that I described to my wife back then was completely different from what I'm building now in some sense. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's gone through two giant pivots at least, right? And, and many more smaller ones, if you can mm -hmm. think of that. So at some point it became that, it became large enough that I started hiring contractors to do certain parts that I either don't have time to do myself or I don't have the expertise or it's just inefficient for me to do them myself. Okay. Right? But, just to make sure our listeners are following along with us, we're not talking about cameras anymore, right? No, we're not talking about cameras. So the original, let me sort of describe mm -hmm. just the problem that we're trying to address without trying to talk about which specific solution is being applied yet. Mm -hmm. Right. The general problem that I kept seeing as an information junkie that consumes a lot of news, books, everything right it just seemed like everything around us is devolving into some form of clickbait it's not even just that the attention span of the readers gets shortened even though that is a side effect right but it seemed like the incentives on the internet that spread to the rest of the site of society from the internet mm -hmm. are to generate as many clicks and views as possible because ultimately you monetize those, whether it's through advertising, yeah, which pays really, per click or per view, right? Yes. Or through something else. And the thought that creeped into my mind at some point is that we're making a mistake when we're looking at somebody to blame for this and we're thinking, this is real news, this is fake news. We should just ban the fake guys, right? The actual problem that I see is you have an evolution with a single selective pressure. Like mm -hmm. It's like you have a population of animals and all the fruit gets higher and higher on the trees. What's going to happen? Their necks are going to get longer. Right? And so this is what we're seeing. Or they learn to climb. Or they learn to climb, right? But if we use Darwin's original example, right, the bird, their beaks are going to get longer or shorter depending on how deep in the ground the seeds are buried, right? Mm -hmm. So the population itself just evolves over time. You cannot blame a particular part of the population. You guys are doing it on purpose, right? That's misdiagnosing the problem. And when you're, we're trying to divide based on source and we think the solution source filtering, that doesn't work either because ultimately everybody faces the same selective pressure. Mm -hmm. And as I started talking to people, I saw that, I saw specific examples of that. Like I would talk to a journalist and many times their main complaint was, 
I wrote an accurate headline and my editor changed it mm. to clickbait. Right? So it's not even that the journalist can be blamed for the thing that their name is on. Sure. Somebody changed it after they're done doing their journalism, right? Because clickbait sells. And so that's the thing that I was running around in my mind with. And the first attempt was, why don't we go in through the advertising side and try to create some way to build an incentive for high quality content into the advertising itself? So maybe instead of number of clicks times number uh, times the cost per click, you have a third factor in the formula, like the quality of the page the click appeared on, right? Mm -hmm. um, and maybe we need to actually try to block all advertising that doesn't comply with this rule. Absolutely. So I, I started going from that direction. Um, then I had a conversation with one very smart individual and he said, well, to do this, you have to learn how to evaluate quality. Why don't you start from that? That, that sounds like something you need to solve anyway. So that was the first pivot where we went from looking at advertising, how to block it, how to uh, monetize it properly, et cetera, to looking at how do we just evaluate quality on the merits. If we're looking at an article, what can we know about it and can say about it that people will likely not argue with because it's just obviously true, right? Classifying it as clickbait or not clickbait, saying it's opinionated or it's relatively balanced and dry, right? Um, it uses offensive language or it uses mild kind of normal descriptive language. So, uh, so maybe you should describe what we're talking about because it might sound a little confusing to people like uh, they don't have any idea what you're talking about right now. Um, I do because I saw it, but um, let's well, talk a little bit about the product that you've created yeah. that addresses this and how it works maybe so that we can kind of put this in the context of how it'll be a benefit to folks. So, so you saw the, the current incarnation of it, right? So actually mm -hmm. the first version of the product was just an extension that creates nutrition labels for articles, right? Mm -hmm. And now you see those nutrition labels within the other web. And what the other web is, it's basically a giant aggregator of content, mm -hmm. news, commentary, podcasts, research studies, Wikipedia pages. It has a built-in search engine, right? So we try to aggregate as much as we can. And then we run it through a bunch of filters that, first of all, detect things that are obviously junk and throw them out. And second of all, create a nutrition label for everything that's left and allow you as the user to customize what your feed is going to look like based mm -hmm. on what you want to see, right? based on parameters within that nutrition label. So I see. That's Good. the main idea, but it started from just the nutrition label originally. And then we had the content aggregator bolted on top, then the search engine. And uh, now I guess, What's gonna come next is social features where you can discuss the content, you can share it, uh, you can follow somebody else's feed, things like that. I see, and so the purpose of it is to kind of uh, eliminate all the noise related to ads and BS and you know false things, right? Like lies. So, so <laughs> the objective uh, or the ultimate objective is to improve the quality of information that people consume. Because to make it accurate, though, not a biased experience, right? Like the I would, I would argue that it's sometimes really hard to figure out what is accurate or not. Mm -hmm. But it is pretty easy or doable to figure out if something is laid out in good form or not. And this is what peer review does in science, for example. Mm -hmm. right? When you send your paper to a peer reviewer, they don't drive to your lab to see if the mice are there and to count them. Right. Mm -hmm. They trust you when you say you have a certain number of mice and a certain number of them survived the procedure. Right? What they're going to check is, did you structure your experiment correctly? Um, do you have a large enough sample size? Does your headline match the abstract? Does your abstract match the body of the article? Um, did you check all the proper you know, corner cases that you should check in your experiment, et cetera? Right? So they're addressing mostly form, and that cannot catch everything that is potentially wrong, some number of papers still basically include completely fake research, but I think it catches 90% of the junk out there. Okay, and yeah, I want to was... introduce something similar to all content in the internet. How would you know if it was fake information? That's the thing where it's, if something is faked in a really elaborate, uh, careful way, it is essentially impossible to know. Right? Mm. Like, I would even, Give you a dumber example. If you say there is a lion in your kitchen right now, how can I know you're lying? I can't without breaking into your house and going to your kitchen and checking. 
-hmm. So I can't really verify the information itself most of the time. What I can <laughs> say is for you to say this thing, you need to present a certain amount of evidence of this form, right? You need photos of your kitchen right now. Maybe you need two eyewitness accounts of seeing the lion there, right? I get so, you. As so that's what we focus on for the most part because that is doable that makes and it sense. works most of the time. Now, over time, we want to get to the point of having a knowledge model of the world and you can actually test various claims against that model. Mm -hmm. But that will only address the last 2 or 3% of bad content out there, I think. The majority of content out there that is bad is not an elaborate propaganda plan that was plotted years in advance by some foreign adversary. Right? Mm -hmm. It's just one guy thinking, how do I get somebody to click on this in the next hour? <laughs> yes, yes. In most cases, I'm sure that that is exactly the case. Um, so what about AI? AI is a new thing. I've been playing with it myself and using it for, uh, you know, its tool set. And it's very, very amazing, actually. I, I'm pretty amazed at what it can do. How do you think that's going to play a role in all this? So we're using it extensively. If you're, when I tell you that we have 20 odd filters that basically evaluate content along multiple axes, right, and try to measure stuff, those are all machine learning models. Very cool. Uh, because generally speaking, a human editor is too slow, cannot That's process right. all the content in the world. That's right. right? And rule-based systems are too dumb. They cannot possibly sure. follow the intricacies of human writing. And so machine learning is this middle ground where you can train something to do roughly what the human did, but much faster. Yeah. And so that's what we use. We mostly have what is called supervised machine learning models, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What is in the news right now, mostly chat GPT, things like that. That's the unsupervised version where you just feed it all the information in the world and see what it learns by itself. Mm -hmm. right? um, we don't have the resources to do something like that. If you see how much money chat GPT or GPT in general, OpenAI burned, it's billions, right? We don't have billions, and so we have to use the more cost-effective method of first having the humans do it and then showing it to a, a machine learning model and trying to get it to do the same thing, roughly. Awesome, man. Very, very cool. And that helps, of course, with uh, you know your process to not have as much of a staff and manpower to manage all that. The machine really helps a lot. There's a few other advantages to it, which is if you're doing it using an, an AI model and not a human, you can open the code to the world. And you can mm -hmm. say, here's what we're doing. You can verify every line of code. You can see the data sets we use to train it. We open those as well. right? Mm -hmm. So when we say we try to avoid bias, you can actually check. If you can find bias, you know, report totally. it. It's all out in the open. No, I love it. going to do the same thing, right? I think it's a, a human brilliant. is going to tell you I'm unbiased and you're immediately looking okay, but who's funding you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're 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 on to something. Um it's a brilliant solution. So let me just get this straight. So you're using AI to manage essentially a space where people can go to read their own emails, messages and uh, communicate without any of the noise to experience ads and podcasts and content uh, without any of the advertisements or interruptions, right? Like, I mean, so that's email really... messages are a little bit out of scope, I would say. So okay. you can think of it as, I would say the part of the product that people use the most is almost like a news aggregator. So you can think of it as Google Reader without ads or paywalls or things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Then you have a podcast player bolted on top. Then you have a search engine, so you can search. Moreover, I think that most searches are triggered by something you saw. And so the idea that the way people search today is they have to open a new window and type, it always irked me. If you see a concept in the news article and you want to know more about it, why do you have to type? It's on your screen already. So what you can do in the other web is just highlight it, right-click and search. And you can select whether you're searching on the web or on Wikipedia or in research studies. Mm -hmm. um, right? and, and then within the search itself, we added a whole bunch of filters as well. So you can disable any result that has an affiliate link in it, for example. Mm -hmm. Because if you're searching for reviews on the product, the last thing you want to see is a website that is monetized using affiliate links. It's, right. It's, it's um, probably not real reviews, right? Um, and you can disable anything with uh, too many ads in it. 
I you gotcha. disable anything that uses language that is too subjective. Because if you're looking for facts, you probably don't want to see that, right? So that's kind of our approach to things where we're trying to aggregate content that you might want to consume in feed form or in search forms. It's not so much emails or messages or things like that. So I've got a crazy question. How do you make your money? I mean, this stuff doesn't run for free. For now, we don't. Um, so our approach to things is let's gather a large enough sample size of users, see how <laughs> they use it, see what value they derive from it, and then see how we can add monetization without interfering with their experience. Yeah, that's a and tricky, that's a slippery slope you're on there, my friend. If you're if your whole product is about eliminating ads, how are you going to put ads in there? Like there well, must it, be a it, way. It, I wouldn't say our product is about eliminating ads, right? Um, our product is primarily about eliminating the bad effect that ads had on content creation, right? I see. I, I don't have that much of a problem with the ad itself. I have a lot of problem when the person writing the article changes what they're writing mm -hmm. because ads are going to appear on it gotcha. and he wants to get more clicks on those ads, right? So the ads themselves, there is a way to make them in a way that doesn't quite interrupt your experience. Mm -hmm. um, our current way, because we see that people use the search function a lot, is we're planning to probably add ads only on the search results page and not in the news feed, for example. Mm -hmm. So the news would stay pristine, but if you're already clicking on something and searching, then you can get some spon sponsored results in there as well. And they're just going to look like the kind of text ad you see on Google search. But those are still old plans, right? We still have to figure out um, how people actually use this. I'm not a big fan of putting monetization before value. Of course. So first, you have to figure out what are people getting from using your product. Mm -hmm. And then you can figure out how to monetize without spoiling that, right? Mm -hmm. um, like you can say many bad things about Companies like Facebook, for example, but they got this one right. They started monetizing really, really late, right? And then they figured out how to monetize and they became really good at it. So if you look at the Facebook ad ecosystem, it's actually really efficient. And most of the time, I don't use it much anymore, but when I still went on Facebook back in the day, the ads I saw were actually things that interested me. It didn't seem like noise in my feed. It seemed like they know me well enough by now to know that this product will not annoy me. In fact, it seems interesting. Wow. So, yeah, they were the best at it. Um, well, you're, probably still you're, are, though. I don't use it much, right? You're lucky. Not me, man. They never got it right. I, I hate Facebook. <laughs> I just can't stand it. It's too much, too much involvement. Like, I don't have time to spend, you know, trying to... I'd rather pick up a phone and talk to one person than have a thousand people read something that I wrote. You know what I mean? I really right. would. And no, so I, I, I never used it, I guess, the way that they intended to. Or mm -hmm. rather, I kept using it for a while the way that they intended to originally before before timeline became a thing, mm -hmm. right? So originally, Facebook was supposed to be a place where you stay in touch with friends. Right. And then at some point, the default view changed from your profile to your timeline mm -hmm. with updates from those friends. And then those timelines switched from being personal updates about what's new in their life yeah. to primarily things they posted about something unrelated like news. And at that point, you can claim it's just a newsreader mm -hmm. where the selection mechanism is just slightly different. Instead of an editor picking your news or an algorithm selecting your news based on interest, your news are being selected based on who your friends are. But mm -hmm. what's the difference to you? It's still just a feed of news. So I, I stopped using it at that point. Yeah, I would say I, I have an account, but I only log into it as being one click away from the Facebook advertising account, I guess. Mm -hmm. But the Facebook user-facing uh, interface, I've never, I haven't really used it in years. There's one thing I've been a little bit curious about, and I can't figure it out, but like uh, I spent a good year when I was unemployed. I was unemployed for an entire year, and I spent a good year building a Facebook following, and I think I got it up over 5,000 friends, and it still stands at like 3,700 mm -hmm. or 3,600. I don't know who these people are. I don't know why they've stuck with me for years, and like I don't even know why they think of me. I just don't get it. You know, it's like a, I mean, it's really nice, I guess, in a way, but like I, I just don't. You know, it's like 
to me, it's old school or I'm not going to school. You know what I mean? I'd rather have this conversation than, you know, send you a little poke or whatever weird thing they do on there. So just your use of the word poke kind of dates you because I don't think yeah. Facebook has had those since 2007. I know, but, I know, I know, I'm old. Uh, yeah, so, well, in some sense, I'm an old soul too, but I see that the modalities that people use change all the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you, the even within our product set, if I just stick to the other web, right? We have a newsletter, we have a web application, and then we have iOS and Android apps. The newsletter is mostly people 65 plus, mm -hmm. right? I'm probably the youngest reader that we have of the newsletter because I like mm -hmm. it. But most people my age, why would you read an email? That makes no sense, right? right? Then you have the middle-aged people, I would say, around 40 plus minus 10. Mm -hmm. They use the web version. And then the app is people 30 and under, right? But you almost have no crossover. Like no 20-year-old is going to read the newsletter. And no 65-year-old is going to use the app. That's my yeah. impression. I'm sure there are exceptions to this, but it seems like the age chooses the modality in a sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, just to call your attention to it, we're about down to our last five minutes. And I want to make sure that we have uh, uh, what people need really to find this thing and try it, you know, because I think it'd be cool. So if we could talk about that for a minute or two and any parting words that you might like to share, I'd love to get those things out there for you now. Sure. So, so what, the website what is, is otherweb. The yeah, other, what is it? The website is otherweb.com. Otherweb.com, yes. right? Yes. And then it's also otherweb on Android or iOS. If you go Very to the cool. App Store or Google Play. Um, so that's how you find us. Now, my main parting words would be that we did eventually convert to a public benefit corporation because we think information quality and improving mm -hmm. the quality of information that people consume is more important than just succeeding as a company or making money or anything like sure. that. Sure. We want to succeed, but there's a mission that comes first. And so my message to the rest of the world is, I don't care if you use us or I prefer that you use us, but if you choose to use somebody else, sure, that's still great. Please still keep those principles in mind, right? Try to curate what you put into your brain. It's just as important as what you put into your body. Yeah. So if, if you can just put that same level of effort of looking at nutrition labels before you eat something, then I think it will eventually improve the incentives for everyone. Because if people stop consuming junk, then there will be less incentive to produce it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for the rest of them, uh, I have an article in my blog called Bonhoeffer's Theory of Stupidity. And uh, it's a really interesting story about how people choose to be stupid. And it does happen. So there are people out there that just aren't going to care. And they're going to go about things the normal way and continue to live in the cycle. But, you know, what you're talking about is very intelligent. And it really requires a dedication to wanting to receive healthy, clean, unfiltered information, right? And to be able to communicate in a way with other people that doesn't involve uh, any misleading, you know, ads or anything like that. Like, that's kind of what I'm hearing, if I got that right. And I want us to be able to get to a point where if I care about the problem and I try to talk to you about the problem, mm -hmm. you at least understand what I'm talking about. We at least have some basic shared reality. You right. might disagree with my solutions, right? Mm -hmm. But if you just disagree on the basic research on that topic, for example, then we can't really get very far. And that means there's essentially no problem in the world we can solve. Mm -hmm. Every problem that we think is important is going to get stuck if there's half the population thinks that they know something, but what they know is just some clickbait they saw yesterday. Right. And that's the interesting thing. Uh, you know, there's things we know, there's things that we know we don't know, and then there's things that we don't know we don't know, and those are the ones that get us, you know. Right. So, um, so we're going to end this thing by referencing Donald Rumsfeld. Great. <laughs> uh, oh, that, that actually did not come from Donald Rumsfeld. That came from the Landmark Forum, the Landmark <laughs> Education right. Process. So he's the one that made it popular, the unknown, unknown speech from 2002, right? Oh, yeah. No, no. He was the last person that I was thinking about. That's a landmark thing. And it's true. Um, it really is. It's absolutely true. People get locked into their brains about things that they feel 
you know, and it's like really important to be able to balance that and and fact and reality. And you know, it sounds like what you've developed is really useful for that, and especially now because you know, if there was ever a time people were more full of poop, I've never seen it. Um, this is a crazy time we're in, and there's all sorts of weird things floating around on the internet and. Gosh, you know, it sounds like you found a way to kind of clean it up a little bit. So I really hope that this, you know, is something that people will explore and take a look at and start to think about, really. It sounds like this is more of a, you know, mission uh, to help people kind of regain their perception of reality. <laughs> it is. So that is my hope as well, that there's a healthy enough percentage of the population that cares. And they just didn't think about it the way that they think about food or environment or things like that. They just didn't realize that what you put into your brain should also be relatively clean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of dirt out there and muck and filth. And sometimes it's disguised so cleverly. It's like a really nice, healthy meal and looks good. But it's like, man, if you eat it, you're dead. You know, you're poisoned. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's crazy. Wow, what an interesting concept. So otherweb.com, right? Yep. Very cool, very cool. Anything else before we wrap up here today? No, I think this is it. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure, Alex. I appreciate you coming on the show and for sharing this. I hope you'll uh, find some new viewers and uh, users. When does the, I mean, there is one other question. Is there going to be another iteration of the service or is it just kind of all, like... All the time. Okay, so just yeah, so, updates well, happen yeah, randomly. They, yeah, th this is not like cars where you have updates once a year. We roll out updates as soon as they're ready. We're constantly experimenting with new features. Uh, some features we actually try to roll out to a small part of our viewers to see how they respond. If they like it, we roll it out to everybody. So there's constantly new things coming, and we add new models. We add new user-facing features. It will continue to evolve. I can't actually predict where it will end up. It might become more of a social network one day, mm -hmm. or it might become more of a news publication one day. It's hard to predict. Um, yeah. Whatever makes people consume better information wins. Sure, sure. And just one very important note, just to address anyone's concerns, I know you take security privacy, or uh, I know you take security very seriously. Can you talk a little bit about how you protect people's privacy? So right now we're collecting very little information. Essentially, we have your email address because we somehow need to ask you how you log in or send your password somewhere if you lose it, right? But we don't collect anything else for the most part. We collect statistics on the usage of the product, but they are not user-specific for the most part. We just want to know if a lot of users like a particular article, right? So we have to see clicks on the article. But we don't need to know your name. We don't need to ask for your phone number the way Facebook or Google do nowadays. Uh, we have no reason uh, to know much about you or to try to keep that information in any way. Very cool. We're here to provide the service to you. Yeah, man. It's like the backwards version of what's really going on in the world, right? Like, I mean, yep. you're completely backwards, but in the right way. Like, you're going the right direction, I think. I really like that. Um, Gosh, very cool. Awesome. Alex Fink of otherweb.com. I just want to thank you again for your time today and for uh, sharing all this. And I hope that uh, listeners will go out and check out your uh, really cool gizmo because it is. It's really neat. Like if, if you're interested in this sort of thing, by golly, go give it a try right now. Otherweb.com. All right. Sounds perfect. Thanks, Tom. Cool, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing today, Alex. And I hope you have a great rest of the day, man. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Toddcast Show. If you found today's episode helpful and meaningful, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on what's next. Remember that the Toddcast Show is all about community and connection. So follow the podcast on your preferred social platform to keep updated on everything I've got in store. Also check out ToddCastShow.com to find out more and stay connected with me, Todd Mira, be sure to tell your friends and family about the Toddcast show so the podcast family can continue to grow and share on an international level. See you over on the next episode. Hi. 
I'm Todd Murat, host of the Toddcast show, and I want to share something personal with you today. Throughout my own life, I've struggled with issues I didn't even realize I had. Things like depression, past trauma, PTSD, and feeling disconnected from the people I loved the most. It took me hitting rock bottom to realize I couldn't fix myself alone. I needed help to unravel the tangled knots within my life, find myself again, and become stronger in the areas I was weakest. It wasn't an overnight transformation, but with time, I learned to change my thinking, my attitudes, and my entire paradigm for the better. I learned that it's good to ask for help, and that's why I want to tell you about our sponsor, BetterHelp. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of the Toddcast Show. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and the best part, it's 100% online. You can participate from anywhere, anytime that works for you. It's simple to get started. Simply answer a few questions about your specific needs and personal preferences in therapy, and BetterHelp will match you with the perfect therapist from their network. It's really that easy. You can message your therapist anytime you need support and schedule a live session when it's convenient for you. BetterHelp is committed to ensuring that you find the perfect match to guide you along your journey to well-being. As someone who went through therapy and came out way ahead of where I started, I want to invite you to take this step to a healthier, happier you today. My life was transformed through therapy, and yours can be too. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you'd expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is hand-picked for you, all at a shockingly affordable price. And as a special offer for our listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month by using the special link, betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast. That's betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast. You don't have to face life's challenges alone. BetterHelp is here to support you through the big and small issues of your life in a way that can really make a huge difference, both short and long term. Take the first step towards a healthier, happier you. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash Toddcast to get started today.